and welcome to another episode of Balanced Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Dr. Joan Ifland is a food addiction professional who is active in both online recovery and research. Dr. Ifland has been an innovator in the field of recovery from food addiction since 1999. She is the author of several popular books, including her most recent book, The Food Addict's Meal Prep Manual, Save Yourself from Food Addiction in Only Two Hours a Week, which is a breakthrough system for easily managing meals for recovery from food addiction. She is the lead author of the first scholarly description of processed food addiction, according to classic addiction diagnostic criteria, and the first scholarly definition of addictive versus non-addictive foods. Dr. Ifland also built the website www.foodaddictionresources.com, which provides free information on recovery from food addiction. In 2016, she founded the first online training in food addiction to make recovery easier in small online groups, and that can be found at www.foodaddictionreset.com. Dr. Joan Ifland, it is such an honor to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. Thank you so much. I am delighted to be here. It is such an honor to have you. I heard you on my friend Scott's podcast, The Carnivore Cast. Um, he's such a nice guy. He's like way too polite and he's helped Amazing. me. Yeah, absolutely. He's helped me so much through the years and including with this podcast. And I, you know what? I didn't even make it through half of the podcast before I was like texting him to see like, whoa, you got to get me her contact oh, information. Thank you. I cannot wait to, so wait to reach out to you. And I, I started asking him that before you revealed on his show what your age was, which absolutely blew my mind and I couldn't see you. I could only hear you, but I'm like, wow, this, this 35 year old really is getting like very excited about stuff. And you said you're over 70, like no way, no way. I'm 70. I turned 70 last fall. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. You don't act 70. No, I agree. Um, because I haven't eaten processed foods. I mean, with some lapses for 26 years, um, I'm not aging. That's incredible. Aging is the result of the just the continued progression, deterioration caused by processed foods. Yeah, that's absolutely crazy. I cannot wait to deep dive with you into this topic. I want to start out right with a punch in the face from the very beginning. Settle the score. Did food companies know what they were doing when they started making foods hyper palatable? Did, did, was this all part of the plan? Yes, it was the tobacco model. So, you, you know, I have an MBA from Stanford. It's, it's an old MBA. I got it in 1978. But I have been very interested in business models since then. And uh, there is an addiction business model. And I've published a paper on this topic. I call it the five A's, the five A's of the addiction business model. You hide addictive substances in the product. You, uh, you attack you target the youngest possible user, you lay on tons and tons of advertising, you make it available everywhere so everybody can satisfy that craving and reinforce it immediately, and then you make it affordable. And those five factors were very present in the development of tobacco epidemics. And, um, in the mid-1980s, tobacco came in and bought Nabisco, Kraft, and General Foods in the space of three years. In that very quick moment in time, tobacco controlled 10% of American spending on food. Wow. And it's, it's a business model. 
I'm glad you used that word. It's that term. It's a business model. It's used in alcohol. It's used in vaping. It's used in cannabis. It was used by the pharmaceutical companies to sell opiates to doctors. It's a business model. And the tobacco industry really honed it to a fine art. And then they started practicing it on sugar for children. It really started in 1963 when a tobacco company bought Hawaiian Punch. Hawaiian Punch had been an alcoholic mixer for adults. And there's, there's, the, the tobacco companies had to submit a lot of documentation at the order of the courts to settle their court suits. So there's this is in internal documents that were put uh, in deposit at the University of California, San Francisco. This evidence is clear. They very deliberately shifted the Hawaiian punch market to addicting sugar, addicting children to sugar. <laughs> and there's this discussion of how to use the tobacco marketing techniques to get children addicted to sugar. It's deliberate, it's chilling, it's laid out in detail in their internal documents. It's, it's unimaginable wow. to me how people could be that deliberately. I mean, this is beyond cruel. It's really... I'm going to use the word. It's evil. Wow. Wow. That is really crazy. I actually didn't know that about Hawaiian punch. Um, I did know about the connections between tobacco and the food companies, which is, it is evil. It's mind blowing. And the story goes back even to how cigarettes were made. It's, cigarettes couldn't be made without sugar being involved in the process. And, and when mm -hmm. I'm sharing this mm -hmm. with some of my clients, like I did this this morning, like talking about how I was going to interview you. And I told a client, like, did you know that cigarettes were only made cigarettes because of sugar? And this person was like, what are you talking about? Like what? But that, that, those two things have come hand in hand for a very long time, haven't they? Well, it's sugar. You needed to soak that tobacco leaf in sugar in order to prevent the person from just coughing up the smoke. It made it possible to hold the smoke and extract the, the nicotine. And it, it very similarly, uh, tobacco didn't become an epidemic until there were rolling machines. Because uh, before that, they were just too expensive. They were handholded in factories that were too expensive to be a popular addiction. But once rolling machines came along, then they were cheap enough that you could then apply the addiction business model. And, you know, by the 1940s and 50s, two thirds of American adults were smoking. Wow. And now 83% of Americans are overweight, obese, or severely obese. Yeah. Wow. It's, 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 you have to be able to establish that there was kind of a force, an agent, if you will, capable of addicting people on a mass scale. And the tobacco experience really gives us that evidence. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I think this is going to be pretty obvious for most of our listeners, but you did mention those five A's. Maybe we can just briefly go through the five A's as it applied to tobacco and how they're able to capitalize on all of those. And then maybe we could, we could talk about how they did the same thing with food. Super. So let's just start right there with affordability. So the, the product has to be cheap enough that the person can buy it often enough to establish the addiction. And what do I mean by that? Meaning that you can teach 
reward center brain cells to hyperproduce cravings to the extent where those cravings are controlling behavior. So you're not controlling behavior by, from your frontal lobe anymore. These hyperactive reward center brain cells can send messaging straight over to the motor control center in the brain and control your behavior. So that is why it has to be cheap, it has to be affordable. So in the case of cigarettes, nicotine became a national, international epidemics because of the rolling machine. They got to be cheap enough, five cents a pack. What happened in processed foods is that high fructose corn syrup came on the market in 1980. Mm. And before that, you see the tobacco reluctance to get involved in this market because the sweetener, the addictive ingredient that you could hide, was controlled by fellow addiction merchants, you know, the sugar cartel in Florida. So once that was the final A, and once it became affordable, then boom, like right away, they moved into the market. So that is how you get it started. You can hide the addictive substance, like they hid extra nicotine in the cigarettes. It can't be explicit. It can't be seeable or knowable because then people would avoid it. Like everybody knows heroin's addictive and they avoid it. So if you knew that cigarettes were addictive, you would avoid them. Okay, so that's the affordable A. The young age of onset, you might remember the Joe Camel cartoon campaign. The cartoons, they were selling cigarettes with cartoons. Yeah. They wanted to get the 10-year-old boys. The earlier you addict any animal, whether it's a laboratory rat or a squirrel or a zebrafish, the harder it will be to eradicate. Or not, you never get to eradicate, but to, at least to put it into remission. So they went after the youngest users, the youngest users. And uh, in that time, we, our regulators still had some backbone and they got that to stop. But once they came into processed foods, oh my gosh, they could get newborn babies by jacking up the amount of sugar in baby formula. They could get toddlers. No one would stop them from advertising these highly addictive substances to toddlers. So you see things like um, the, when the tobacco comes in and then you see the obesity rate in children go from 10% to 15% a 50% increase within 10 years. Why? They're hiding all the sugar, fat, salt in children's food, and they increase the advertising. So that's the next A, advertising. The number of Saturday morning cartoons for these highly addictive substances were already 150 in, oh, the mid-1980s. But within 10 years, it was... 550, 550 commercials for recreational drugs to toddlers, small children, adolescents watch those commercials per Saturday morning. And Nickelodeon carried those commercials to 65 million households. And we have really good research showing that it only takes five commercials to influence a toddler. Like you put... Uh, one group of toddlers watches a TV program with five commercials for a product. The other toddlers are watching the same program, no commercials. 
you put them all in a room with a lot of different products, the, the children who have seen those five commercials will go for that product. And there they are seeing 550 <laughs> in one morning. Wow. So it's not, it's not really mysterious at all what happened to me. Okay, so that's advertising. And then you have, um, so you have addictive product formulation. You're hiding the addictive substances in the product. You go for young age. You lay on the advertising. You make it very available. So they were being forced by the courts to take the vending machines out, the cigarette vending machines. They were being forced by the courts and by legislation, by regulation, uh, to have very specific points of sale for cigarettes where you had to show an ID. Well, my gosh, they're taking those cigarette vending machines out and they were putting in snack and soda machines. Wow. So they maintained wow. availability and they were able to push into like workplaces. So when I got out of business school in 1978 and I went to work for a corporation, there was no food in the break room. Really? There was coffee, there was tea, there was, you know, packets of sugar and the white powders to put in your coffee. But there was no food in there. And nobody would ever eat in a meeting. Oh my gosh, it would just be so gauche. I mean, you'd never eat in a meeting. You would have coffee. If you were a wuss, you would have tea. If you were a real wuss, you would have water. <laughs> and if you were a real man, you would have your coffee black. Anyway. Have you been to a break so, room recently? Have you been to a normal break room recently? It's atrocious. <laughs> it's so bad. It's so bad out there. I feel so sorry for people who have to work in those workplaces. Well, I mean, it, it's gone way beyond that. Like hospitals will have donut shops in them. Hospitals will have coffee shops in them. This has been so well covered up that it was possible. This was Howard Schultz, who's the head of Starbucks, for a drug dealer. Howard Schultz is a drug dealer. Caffeine is a horrible drug. That he was going to declare and run for president. Like, this is like, are you kidding? Really? Do you not see that? Wow. Anyway, so did we get all of them? It's addictive products, formulation, age of onset, advertising, availability, and affordability. It's a business model. Wow. That's all it is. It's a it's a dreadful tragically destructive, tragically effective business model. Wow. It's a business model. Yeah. No, I, and, and I was one of the kids watching one of those 60 plus, you know, of the 60 plus million kids. And I remember getting the big punch bowl. One, one little bowl wasn't enough. You had to get the big punch bowl of the cold cereal. You watch the cartoons for sure. But when you really think back on it, you, you could hardly distinguish, especially in my child brain, what's the difference between the cartoon versus the commercials? They all have cuddly creatures. They all look really fun, whether it's Tony the Tiger or Super Chicken or, you know, Sesame Street, whatever. Take your pick. It all looks the same to me, especially looking back. Yeah, you can't. The children can't tell the difference between a commercial and a program. And you're right. They're all their friends. They identify with those characters as friends. Their friends are eating this crap. Their friends are 
promoting these uh, drugs and they trust their friends. This is how you manipulate a child into trusting and buying your, not buying your product, but nagging your parents for the product. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. And I think back, and that was even when you had separate, you know, Tony, the tiger was just for like frosted flakes or something. But as the years went on, it seemed like you would get like SpongeBob is now on cereal boxes. And so they went even deeper into like, there's really no difference between the characters in the show versus the characters that are on the cereal box. Exactly. Exactly. You know, Disney has gotten involved. All their characters are selling fast food, Marvel comics, you know, I'm going to eat that because Superman eats that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, so tell us a little bit more about the high fructose corn syrup, because I think this is really fascinating. This sounds like a really good deflecting point of not only where, you know, we started to consume more of it, but it was also almost exactly the same time nutritional guidelines came out, almost exactly the same mm-hmm. time that obesity takes that, you know, hockey stick shaped curve and just starts yeah. going upward. What was it specifically about the high fructose corn syrup that was so uh, detrimental? Well, it's addictive. Uh, Rob Lustig has published an incredible article detailing how high fructose corn syrup goes through the body compared to corn alcohol. It's the same. It's it's a drug. It's it's a destructive drug. So in the 1970s, 60s and 70s, Uh, maybe 1972, Secretary of Agriculture Earl Butts took all the limits, all the quotas off of corn. Why? Because Richard Nixon had sold all of our wheat to Russia and they were afraid of food shortages now in the United States. So he took all the limits off of corn. He told the farmers, just grow corn fence to fence as much as you can get out of your land. So in order to do that, those farmers had to buy equipment. They got into debt. They had to buy tractors and plows and all that stuff. And then, of course, when they were growing that much corn, the prices fell. And what the U.S. Department of Agriculture said was just grow more corn. Now the U.S. Department of Agriculture is between a rock and a hard place because they have all this corn to sell. Well, the prices kept dropping and farmers went out of business. And who came along and bought those farms? Mega businesses like ConAgra. Right now, ConAgra owns all these these millions of acres of corn and they're turning to the USDA and they're saying, help us sell this. Keep us solvent, keep us profitable. That's your job, USDA. So the USDA, when that high fructose corn syrup was invented, like, oh, gosh, this is the solution to all of our problems. And they just promoted the heck out of it, never considering that it was going to be killing a million Americans every two years. Wow. So so it's cheap. It converts to fat two and a half times more readily than sugar. So if you eat a teaspoon of sugar, you'll get X amount of fat. If you eat a teaspoon of high fructose corn syrup, you'll get that amount of fat times 2.5, especially in in organs. So this is why we have an epidemic of fatty liver in children. They're drinking sodas that are sweetened with high fructose corn syrup, and they have fatty liver, which means that your liver is not filtering 
which means that toxins are building up in that little body. And we have good research also from Rob Lustig where they took out the high fructose corn syrup sweeteners from adolescence meals, adolescents who had non-alcoholic fatty liver. It was only nine days until those livers started to clear up. Wow. They didn't lose any weight. They made sure that if they started to lose weight, they gave them more flour. So another refined carbohydrate. It was a brilliant study, and it clearly showed that high fructose corn syrup causes the buildup of fat in the liver and prevents the liver from filtering. So it wasn't just any carbohydrate. It was specifically high density, or I'm sorry, um, high fructose corn syrup that was the most most uh, to blame for, for the liver dysfunction. I think that's fair. I mean, it's not the only thing. There's There are seven big categories of processed foods that cause damage. Uh, all the sugars, flour, uh, gluten, uh, excessive salt. You need some salt. It's, it's essential to have some salt, but excessive salt is addictive. Dairy. Dairy has casomorphines in it. Processed fats. Even lard, I'm sorry to say caffeine, and then food additives. So to say that there's one causing um, the liver, the fatty liver, well, I mean, there is evidence for it. The study that I just described is certainly evidence for that. Interesting. I do. Yeah, that's very interesting. It's just so interesting when you look at the liver and you think that we only used to call this, you know, alcoholics fatty liver, but then when kids show up with it, well, we can assume that most 10 year olds haven't been hitting the bottle too hard at that point in their life. It's almost like the diabetes thing, like type two diabetes used to not be called that. It used to be called adult onset because it would only manifest in older ages. And you just wonder Mm -hmm. like what's going to happen in the future with things like, you know, dementia and Alzheimer's and all these mental issues that we have. When are we going to have to start to be really honest and maybe change the names of those because generations younger and younger and younger, sadly are going to probably start presenting with that they, they are they are i just gave a, a lecture to a medical school earlier this week and i encouraged them to reframe their thinking about diagnoses so diabetes should be diabetes comma complication of processed food addiction heart disease complication of processed food addiction dementia complication of processed food addiction et cetera, et cetera, the common, the cancer, complication of processed food addiction, because people would stop eating it if they were not addicted. They would. Mm. They want to. People want to stop eating this. It's just like cigarettes. People wanted to quit smoking. 1964, the Surgeon General comes out, tobacco causes cancer. People want to stop smoking, and they can't. A hidden addiction. This is the same thing with processed foods. Yeah. You know, this is very anecdotal, but I've looked this up on Google because I was curious about it. I just kind of noticed a pattern. And sure enough, the soda store that's right down the street, a few miles away from my house, has this line of cars that wraps around the building with people buying, you know, a bucket of soda and 17 sugar cookies or whatever. And I wanted to see, like, when is this the most popular? And sure enough, the least popular days are like Monday, Tuesday. The most popular days are Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And it's the most popular at the times – 
when you would think like, okay, this is like two or three hours after a meal, 3 p.m. and 8 p.m. is when my store down the street is the most popular. And you wonder like, you mentioned people wanting to absolutely. Everybody probably has a little bit more willpower on Monday. Diet starts on Monday. We're recommitted. We're going to be on it. End of the week goes, people are hungry. They're frustrated. The brain isn't working right. They're maybe hangry. And that's a great solution is to go to the soda store, get yourself a nice pick me up a few hours after you already had a meal, presumably lunch or dinner. Like, why are you hungry for a bunch of sugar late in the week at those times? I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's brilliant. That was a great bit of research research there. <laughs> yes. So they eat a processed food meal and they get high from it. And then a couple hours later, they're crashing. That, I mean, yeah, again, it's totally anecdote, but it would make sense to me. Like, what are you guys eating for lunch that you're so hungry that you would go to this store and spend more money on just a bunch of sugar. And especially on those days and times. And, and you're right. Like, I, I think most people know this stuff is bad for me. I don't want it. I know I need to lose weight. My doctor said I need to lose fat. My doctor said I'm pre-diabetic. I want to get off this stuff and I can't. I think it's that addictive property of it. Yeah. So the addiction, as I was saying earlier, can has so much messaging inside the brain, neurotransmitter transmission, that it can it can go directly over to the motor center and control behavior. This is in the research. This is brain imaging research. That decision is, it's not a decision. It's, it's a reaction. It's a, it's a helpless reaction. It's going straight over in the, in the midbrain. The frontal lobe could be screaming. No, 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 no. I don't want to do that. But the, the pattern doesn't even reach the frontal lobe. It goes directly from the addicted reward centers right to the motor center. And people talk about this. I call it the zombie walk. You know, you don't, you're, you're walking, you're zombie walking to the kitchen. You're zombie walking to your car. Your frontal lobe is screaming, no, 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 we don't want to do that. And your hand is reaching to turn on the car and go get the fast food. It's scary. It's frightening. Wow. You mentioned zombie walk. I was thinking in my head, the cartoons where the smell of the pie, like the fresh baked pie, and they start like floating in the air towards the pie. Wow. That's crazy. Um, I, I did that, that. Maybe this is a good point to ask. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the difference between like short-term damage from eating processed food versus maybe like chronic damage. What's hap what happens like long-term, especially in the, in the area of the brain specifically. Oh yeah. Okay. Let's start with the brain. That's a good thing to do. What happens is so these this hyperactive reward pathway and the hyperactive stress pathway, why does the stress pathway become hyperactive? It's because the brain is trying to save our lives all the time. So when you get that euphoric reaction, now this, this is one of the reasons why processed food addiction is so severe. It's because of the combination of all of those ingredients some uh, hyperactivate dopamine, some serotonin, some opiate, and some cannabinoid, same pathway as marijuana. So you have all four pathways, hyperactive, hyperreactive, queuing coming in all the time. They're just pumping out neurotransmitter. It just drives people literally crazy. It's the, it develops into an obsession. Well, there is a, the the brain will try to bring you back down because when you're in that euphoric state, you've lost control of your behavior. The saber tooth tiger can get you more easily. 
So the brain has a corrective response, and that's a stress pathway. It's called the corticotropin releasing factor pathway, and it sends a signal down to the adrenal glands, and the adrenal glands pump out adrenaline. So now this poor person, there are two thought patterns are so tightly enmeshed that they happen simultaneously all the time. And that is cravings and stress. So you, the person inside their head, they're like, I don't want to eat that. I don't want to eat that. I hate myself. I'm going to eat, well, I'll just have one. Oh, now I ate that one. I'm going to have to go to the store and I'm going to have to get replaced that. Oh, I'll get a dozen. I hate myself. I hope nobody sees me. Well, I'll take the dozen with sprinkles. And no, 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 I don't want that. No, no, I'll take them. It's that stress, the, the thought of a food and the just the constant uh, reaction of stress. And then you have stress and your first thought is I'm going to eat something because it works the other way as well. You get an increase in stress that activates the, the feel-good pathways. It's horrible. Okay, so you have that going on. That's pulling a lot of blood flow into those two centers in the brain. But then there's something else that's happened. Dieting and fasting. So when you don't eat enough food, your body protects you against famine. It actually lowers your expenditure rate, and that's why people regain weight so easily, and many people have developed weight loss resistance. That's just your body trying to keep you alive. So this chronic dieting, chronic fasting, chronic not eating enough food uh, has activated another part of the brain. It's the fear of famine brain. It's a, it's a very primitive part of the brain. Now you have three three systems that are pulling the blood supply away from the frontal lobe. So the frontal lobe is, is the neocortex. It's the new brain. We've only had it a couple hundred thousand years. It is the lowest priority of the brain. It's there for decoration. <laughs> you know, it's there so that we can build skyscrapers and paint and create language, it doesn't have a whole lot to do with survival. So it's the last part of the brain that's going to get blood flow if there's any kind of demand on the, on the rest of the brain. Well, over time, de depriving the frontal lobe of blood flow creates what's called cognitive impairment. The research on this is solid. There are lots, uh, well, there are good, solid number of studies showing cognitive impairment. And so what's up there? Attention span, learning, decision-making, memory, impulse control, some emotional processing. And that's why you see that, well, you know, Joan, if that were true, there'd be epidemics. There are epidemics, ADD, learning difficulties, poor decision-making, poor impulse control, and memory loss. You're describing, like, every student. This is every student is dealing with this. No wonder they can't, you know, go to a, a, a closed room and sit in a hard chair and focus on what's being, you know, taught to them. It's, it's going to be impossible. It was so bad during COVID. I really thought maybe parents would catch on, but it was the other way around. They would say, you know, if you can finish this problem set, I'll give you a treat. 
Well, now you've activated cravings in that poor kid's brains, and now the blood flow is really moving away from the part of the brain that could do the problem set. It's horrible. It's wow. just horrible. People, and people don't know they're doing it. Wow. So uh, as the years go on, you develop dementia. We call it dementia. It's not dementia. It's the advanced stages of processed food addiction. Wow. You develop Alzheimer's. Uh, you you develop a whole set of very painful conditions that we call aging. It's not aging. It's the progression of the destruction of these processed foods. So depression, because after a while, those reward center receptors wear out. It's called downregulation. You're not feeling pleasure or satisfaction or a sense of good anymore because those pathways have collapsed. They open up again if you stop stimulating them. So that's, I, just, I always have to put that in right away. Don't worry, they will come back. And it only takes about three weeks. You have, um, you have dementia, you have depression, you have fatigue, you have joint pain, you have weight gain, and those are and and you start to have muscle and bone problems. And those are all, oh, well, you're just getting older. No, 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 no. And we have people who are over 70 years old in our program. They come off these processed foods and their signs of old age go away. Yeah. Wow. Not old wow. age. Wow. That's amazing. I was just thinking to myself, like if I were to go out and ask a thousand people in my neighborhood, you know, all of those things and whether that's just normal aging, 999 of those people would say, yeah, that's just totally normal. You get dad bod and you know, I get more tired and I can't lift stuff anymore. And yeah, you break your hip and it's kind of good night from there. And, and that's not the case. Same thing about weight loss though. Like if I were to go ask those same thousand people, how do I lose weight? Oh, well you need to exercise more and you need to eat less. And I was fortunate enough to work on a metabolic cart for over a decade. And I can confirm exactly what you said. We would measure resting metabolic rate. How many calories does it take for your body to live and operate and breathe and think and all these things. And sure enough, if you were really good at dieting, you would come in to see me. You were probably freezing cold. You were probably moody. You probably had, you know, maybe lean arms and lean legs, but definitely some, some weight around the midsection as the body is seeking to keep your organs at a certain temperature because everything's cooling down. And sure enough, we'd hook you up to this machine and it would show you that you're burning 200 calories less, 400 calories less, 600 calories less than what you should be burning for somebody your age, height, weight, and gender. And trying to explain to people like, yeah, this is why your diet doesn't work long term. And this is why it's harder every single January when you come back and start another diet and you're on cabbage soup and you're on kale salads and you're back on the elliptical and the treadmill and mid January, you are exactly just exhausted and you start gaining all the way back. And then some, it's terrible. It's awful. It's awful to have these problems just piling on, compounding, making everything worse. I just feel so sorry for people. It makes me very, very grateful for you that you're getting the word out there. Because the way to lose weight is to get the fattening processed foods out of your system. I mean, that's one of the greatest and most horrible and most astonishing, just egregious acts ever. 
These processed food makers who created obesity, they then got into the diet product market. <laughs> this is like, this is like, you know, uh, this is like Philip Morris investing in cancer treatment. And, and of course, you know, putting the highly addictive substances into smaller packets, you just rip through the whole container, opening one packet after another, but it didn't make any difference. It was all just fake, delusion, deception, just this really glib manipulation of people. It, it's just been so bad. It's so bad. I've mentioned this recently on the show before. Like I, I saw like slim fast keto snack, something at the, at the local store mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. It, it was like 10 or $12. Like it wasn't cheap. And I went over to the package to take a look at it. And I almost inadvertently threw it across the store because it was so light. It was, it was 2.96 total ounces of food. It's pretty good size box, less than three ounces Divided into six servings. So each serving was less than one half of an ounce of whatever. You could put pure sugar in there. You could put anything in there and it would be slimming or keto or whatever you want to call it. I mean, there's no way you're going to eat that and feel good about yourself. You're going to go through that whole package and then order a pizza. Like that's, that's absurd. Those are, those are craving stimulators. Wow. Yeah, it, it it's is. It's really bad out there. It's so crazy. So I, yeah. I, I want to, I want to eventually get to like the good news part of all of this, because there is some good news. I hope everybody is absolutely scared to death at this point, because you should be, you need to respect all this. And it's absolutely crazy. And you're right. What, what a normal person has stacked against them in their normal day is, is so crazy difficult. And I, I want to kind of get to the good news of all of this by highlighting your story. So going back with your story, how did you discover that all of this was really problematic for you? What did you do to get rid of all the processed foods? Besides the obvious, you get rid of the processed foods. And how did you respond over time? And how were you able to make this message um, something that you wanted to share with people? Oh, thank you. Well, I um, when I look back on my life, I went to kindergarten craving. I, I um, in, in my home, I could go out to the kitchen and make a highly processed snack anytime. This is the early 1950s. So this didn't start in the, in the mid-1980s. We had, uh, you know, white bread and processed cheese and juice from concentrate. We had the sugary breakfast cereals. We had toast that was covered with um, margarine and, and sugary jam. We had grilled cheese sandwiches for lunch with canned soup. And then my mother would make a meal, but we made a dessert in our house every day. And the children in the middle of two of three children, we fought all the time. Our particular family's reaction to these substances is irritability, anger, anxiety, critical nature, raging, and um you know, physical abuse, mental abuse, emotional abuse. We had two very angry, critical, mean parents. And when I think about what was flowing through our household, I just think, like, how could it be any other way? Well, when I had my two kids, um, I was determined that wouldn't happen. I went into therapy right away at this 1983 and 84. Wow. I didn't know. And my therapist didn't know. I wouldn't say that time was wasted, 
But if she had told me right off the bat, if she had been able to tell me right off the bat, sugar and flour are causing your rage. Let's get you off of them and see what happens. I, it would have been effective as it was. And she was lovely. And I, I just am so grateful to her for all the things that she was able to show to me about my childhood trauma. Great. I got all that knowledge, but it didn't stop the raging. And then I did a women's group. So uh, this is a women's healing group, da, da, da. And that didn't help. In fact, they were using sugar. So on their weekends, I was just starting to learn about all this that I had to quit the, I had to quit the organization. I just, they were not reliable. And then I went into a 12-step group, Codependence Anonymous. And that was where uh, another CODA member finally heard the sugar driving my raging. And she got me into uh, another 12-step group, Food Addicts in Recovery. And it was January 1996. And I will never forget it. There was too much food on the food plan to lose weight. I knew that because I was a restricted calorie dieter. But I said, I'm going to try it anyway. And she didn't tell me about the connection to my rage. She just said, you know, you should try food addicts in recovery. So I finally did. I gained a bunch of weight and I, I tried it. So, uh, but it, it got rid of the sugars and flowers. And within four days, the brain fog lifted, the fatigue lifted, the bloating stopped. And uh, I didn't know that you could possibly not have cravings. I didn't know that was possible. Every moment of my life, I had been thinking about food, and it stopped. It's a four-day withdrawal. It can be up to eight days for some people. But the real message here of that story is to your people, cravings get worse during those four days. A lot of people say, oh, I can hold on for three days, and then I, then I fall off. It's because the cravings have become more intense on that third day are going to become even more intense on the fourth day. And then they go away. So people think, I can't do this because I can't fight these cravings. You know, feeding a craving is like feeding a stray cat. It only encourages it to come back. But if you can hang on until the cravings stop, then you get your first day. For a lot of people, it's going to be their first day of their entire lives free from cravings. And then the most amazing thing is that weekend I weighed myself. I'd lost two pounds. I was eating a lot of food. Wow. And lost two pounds. So it continued into the next week. The allergies, like I hadn't been able to go back to work because my eyes were constantly streaming, constantly sneezing, just runny nose, a lifelong sinus infection. And in the second week, that cleared up. Not entirely, but it just got like 100 times better. The asthma got better. Lifelong asthma got better. And uh, I just started to feel like I'd won the lottery every day. I was going to the support meetings. And so I had a community for those first couple of weeks. But it was the third week. It was Thursday, January 18th, 1996. I'm standing in my kitchen and I'm thinking, Wow, I haven't had to yell at anybody in three weeks. Everybody's been so good. Everybody's really weeks. well behaved. And then it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh my gosh, this has got something to do with the food. I've stopped yelling. 
I've sought stopped criticizing people because I'm out of my mind with anxiety about them. And I went to my group that weekend. They had a special event and I just couldn't wait. I said, do people become less irritable on this food plan? 20 heads in the room. Yeah, pretty normal. God dang. I called up my therapist and I told her about it. And she immediately started trying it out with her patients and got the results, like people with depression their entire lives. The depression started lifting. So that was the moment. Uh, I said, I am going to dedicate the rest of my life to telling people what is actually going on. And I went <laughs> over the next 22 years. I tried over 14 different things. I had tried. My first thing was a handout for the moms in my kids' school. Nobody could do it. Well, they just don't know how to do it. It's a little bit complicated. I, I spent three years writing a book about our family's experience. How do you do this? Didn't help at all. I tried getting on TV. I got with a PBS producer in Houston, and we did a couple of TV shows about it. Meh, no impact. Um, the book was doing well on Amazon. It stayed in the top, I don't know, a couple of percent of the books for 10 years, thanks to the support of the PBS show. I was going around getting talks about it. People wanted to come and work with me. I said, well, I don't have a license. I'll be your educator. So they came and they got education and it didn't help. None of it helped. I just thought, oh, this is just going to be all over. People just don't know. I didn't know what an addiction was. Even though the name of my group was Food Addicts in Recovery, I didn't really know what an addiction was. So I'm trying to get on this big national show in New York. And the, the final producer, I survived like three interviews. I'm going to New York. And the final producer comes on and says, we cannot take you. We're going to take the doctor because you don't have a degree in your field. I had my wonderful, beautiful Stanford MBA, but they wanted a degree in my field. So I said, dang, I'll go get one. <laughs> in Cincinnati. So Union Institute and University is headquartered in Cincinnati. It's the only school on the planet that is designed specifically for new fields. And I happen to know there were like three real kick-ass nutritionists that come out of that program. So I went and I uh, earned a PhD in addictive nutrition we validated that the same diagnostic criteria that are used for alcoholism, we validated those as applicable, reliable for overeating. And we published on it, and then we published the first description of the, the disease in the academic press. So we, we named the disease, Refined Food Addiction. Wow. And I thought, well, this, is, this will now, this will really take off. Not... I started writing papers and chapters for other books. Not, nothing happened. <laughs> nothing happened. Wow. And then wow. Um, I got my doctoral divorce. So my husband just got tired of seeing my back at the computer, I think. And I used my divorce. So I said, well, I'm going to give people clean food. And then they're going to see how much better they feel. And they're just going to want to do it. I lost my entire divorce settlement in that business. That is the model that says, you know, I'm just going to tell these alcoholics about Perrier. And then they're going to want Perrier and they, then it'll be better. 
No, <laughs> it's just like missing the whole point of what is an addiction. Addiction is billions of brain cells that are malfunctioning. You've got to go through and systematically retrain enough of them that, that now the rational brain cells dominate the brain instead of the addicted and stressed brain cells. So um, I'm doing all that work and two things happen simultaneously. CRC Press, which is the biggest textbook publisher in the world, comes to me and says, will you write the textbook for the processed food addiction field? And my dad died. Well, suddenly I had enough money to live. Uh, he left me enough money to live. And I needed to go back to Cincinnati and look after my stepmom, just advocate for her. And boom, I had, I had something to do. I was going to write this textbook. So three years, full time, looking at research, building the narrative, building the story. There's thousands, literally. I mean, I looked at something like six or 8,000 studies. The, bill, the book was built on 2,000 studies. I was able to find evidence for everything I knew about food addiction from having been in support groups and listening to people for all those years. I knew what it looked like. I knew, I knew very much what it looked like. So my job with the textbook was to find research. So it's not enough to say, oh gosh, everybody is, is sad because they're fighting with their family members. Um, that's, that's something that you hear a lot of in recovery circles. I could find a study that said that people, overeaters have relationship problems. That's one of the criteria for an addiction. So I spent those three years full-time documenting with other people's research. Why, would, why are there so many studies when nobody's heard of processed food addiction? It's because people would, were doing massive numbers of studies on obesity, eating disorders, and drug addiction. And they didn't know it, but their findings were illustrating aspects of processed food addiction. So after three years, we have this massive textbook. This is 240,000 words long. It's got about 2,000 citations in it, and it's over. You cannot say that it doesn't exist. It's just laid out page after page after page after page. This is what addiction looks like. This is what overeating looks like, and it's the same. The brain scans, the behaviors, the business model, even government things like government subsidized tobacco, which made it cheap enough for everybody to buy it and become addicted. Now they're subsidizing corn and wheat and sugar and um, uh, dairy, even the demographics. The tobacco industry went after the, the least well-served segments of the population and the processed food industry has done the same thing. So um, that piece of it is over. But what, here's the thing that I got out of writing the textbook, which is that this is a severe addiction. How do you know? And the American Psychiatric Association says, here are the 11 behaviors that we see in addicted people. If you have six or more of these behaviors, it's a severe addiction. Well, I wrote, chapter, I wrote a chapter on each one of those 11 diagnostic criteria. I wanted to show people this really does exist in overeating. 
It's not just alcoholism. It's overeating. So I wrote chapter one. I said, yeah, lots and lots of people have that. Chapter two, oh, everybody's got that. Chapter three, everybody I've ever talked to has that. Chapter four, chapter five. I get to the end of chapter six. I said, mm, yeah, everybody's got that. And I just like sitting there in my chair. Oh my gosh, this is a severe addiction. Well, immediately, you know, I go and look up, what do you do for a severe addiction? Oh, you go away to residential treatment for a couple of years. Well, we're not doing that for hundreds of millions of people. So I said, okay, well, what's the next one? That's what's the next level down? Intensive outpatient. Well, that's where you go to the hospital from nine to four every day, Monday through Friday for weeks on end. And I said, well, I'm not going to be able to just persuade a hospital for a long time. Well, I worked on the rest of the, the textbook. I, I turned in the manuscripts in the middle of 2017, and I immediately started looking for a teaching website, and I built a teaching website. But at the end of that year, I met Zoom. And I thought, wow, could we possibly provide intensive outpatient over Zoom? So, so I had by by that time I had established a daily phone call, which wasn't nearly enough. A daily meeting was not nearly enough. So I went to the people who were on the daily phone call and I said, Do you guys want to experiment with me? Let's do a week on Zoom and see what happens. They were all struggling. It wasn't successful. But so January 1st, 2018. We all got on Zoom. I don't have enough experience to Zoom, with Zoom to know that it's going to exhaust me to be on Zoom all day. It's just like, okay, let's, let's do this. So I got about 10 people. They were quite nervous. Uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this. I haven't been able to have a clean day for 20 years. I don't think I'm going to be able to do this because if I start to weigh and measure, I'm just going to binge because I'm scared I won't have enough food. Don't weigh and measure. Just, just get clean today if you can. Don't worry if it doesn't happen today. So at the end of the day, I went back to 10 people. Casey, they had all eaten clean that day. 22 years, I was looking for a reliable way to get people off these addictive substances. And it happened January 1st, 2018, over Zoom. So we went the rest of the week, they got through withdrawal. They were happy campers. They had all agreed to volunteer for the next week. We had a paid week. I had advertised it. We had another, say, 10 people. And they got all clean in the first day and got through withdrawal that week. And I just thought, okay, this is it. And 22 years later, all those things I tried, this is it. I didn't know why it worked. But I got busy and I started reading research and looking for an explanation. And here it is. The single, by far, most powerful system in the brain is mirror neurons that drive conformance. Because whether you're a creationist or whether you're an evolutionist, both of those frameworks say you must be in a tribe to survive. So if you know, you know Maslow's hierarchy of need, the bottom row is food, water, shelter. It's not the bottom row because you need to have people. You need to have connection with people to get the food, water, shelter. So mirror neurons run behavior. Don't ever think that you have control over your behavior. 
the people, the five people you see the most are going to determine your behavior. So the research on this is very clear. And um, we've gradually, so we've had this online community for four years. We now, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's like, um, it's like an online uh, campus, like a high school campus or a college campus, a university campus, in that you can go to a lot of different things through the day. We broadcast 16 hours out of every 24 live. Amazing. A live person there. Because how do mirror neurons decide who they're going to copy? It's by the amount of time. It's the amount of time they see that person. Okay, so this is the person we see the most. We need to copy them. It's up to five people. After The sixth person is not going to have a bigger impact than the first five. It's uh, especially around food, copying people, copying what people are doing with food. But it's time. It's the amount of time that you see another person. And your brain will helplessly. And it's so direct. Mirror neurons are actually stimulating the direct brain cells. It's not like they're telling the frontal lobe and then the frontal lobe makes a decision. No, no, no. It's like a network all over the brain. Every part of the brain has mirror neurons in it. So, for example, if you see somebody sad, how do you know they're sad? It's not because your frontal lobe goes through a Rolodex. Oh, that matches sad. No, that is not what's happening. Mirror neurons are stimulating the sad-making brain cells. You feel sad because mirror neurons are copying the mood of the other person. So that's what was happening. That's how the food industry gets us so sick. You know, go back to our discussion about the cartoon characters. Oh, they're eating that. Well, I'm going to eat that too. I'm going to nag my parents until they have that in the house. That's all mirror neuron kidnapping. It's mirror neuron enslavement to get to the addicted reward center brain cells. So that's the discovery. It's the addiction reset community. It works like gangbusters. Uh, people, the 16 hours are spread out over 24. We are worldwide. Anybody who can get to the internet can get well by putting their mirror neurons in a safe place. But once you really get it, that mirror neurons are driving your behavior, then you know exactly what to do. Wow. Wow. You are an absolute saint for caring about something so much to never give up. I think about all those points where you did something, didn't work. Okay, let me try this. Didn't work. I would probably do like two, maybe three of those things before I was like, okay, I'm going to go on a bike ride now and maybe I'll start gardening and nobody wants to listen to me anyway, but you kept going and stayed persistent. Casey, you never gave up either. (laughs) You've got this podcast. You are out there. You are in this to win this. You and I are two peas in the same pod. Yeah. We we never gave up. And I do, I do love that part of things. I, I think of it you know, I've shared this before, you know, the shark, the starfish story where, you know, the big storm, you know, there's all these starfishes everywhere and little girl throwing them back in the sea. And the old man comes up and says, Hey, what are you doing? Like, you're not going to be able to save all the starfish. And little girl throws a starfish in said, well, save that one. So, and and I look at this the same way. Like, I don't think, 
I, I, I really feel terribly about the people that have the break room. They have all of these things stacked against them. They have the commercials. They've got the kids nagging them, all of that stuff. It's going to be very difficult. It is possible, and it's going to be difficult, but it will be possible. And I just think if a few people can be reached with any of our messages, I think it's a wonderful thing. And and like you, I mean, your reaction when you when you think back on the first 10 people that you actually helped, it, that's priceless. That makes all of it worth it. That makes all of it worth it. I just, I so- I felt, I felt- that way that's amazing but i do want your listeners to know i mean you just did an amazing job of encapsulating the challenges if you are in a group which is which has overcome those challenges you can train the brain not to react to the processed foods in the break room it's a process of reconditioning so it's associative cueing you see that your brain says yummy i want that oh i can't have it i want that oh i can't have it you just like when you're learning a foreign language in english you see a car it's a car you are associated to have that word by that sight but if you learn french and you go to to paris and everybody's talking speaking french around you all the stimulation is in french when you see that object your brain is going to come up with voiture that's a process of conditioning, Pavlovian conditioning of brain cells through repeat messaging. It's the same thing with getting over an addiction and getting over cravings. You can retrain those reward center brain cells instead of thinking, oh, yummy. You can retrain them to think, oh, that'll make me sick. I'll have a headache for four days. Uh, you know, I'll get cancer like my mother did. So you just, you, but that takes, it's just like learning a new language. It takes hours and hours and hours to take all of the brain cells that are holding, oh, that's yummy, and and rewire them to say, oh, no, that'll make me sick. And it might take some time and some effort, but to know that it is possible to recover and people can regain that kind of sensitivity to to. I, I mean, I was just thinking about this the other day. I, I take this for so much for granted when I walk through a grocery store and I, you can just walk past all of these aisles and just recognize like my food isn't here. I don't need to go into these aisles. I don't even think about it anymore because I've taken right. it completely out of my life and I take it for granted now. But to let people know that that is possible, that, that you can be at a birthday party and enjoy people and enjoy family and have a great time celebrating somebody without obligatorily having the piece of cake that's going to send you down a negative spiral. So I just, I absolutely yeah. love your message. It's so empowering and, and I'm just so grateful for you and for all of your work. Where can people go to find out about your amazing programs? Okay. So the addiction reset community is at foodaddictionreset.com. Our main hub where we have all of our services is processedfoodaddiction.com. We train people to be advocates in our program. I think we're the only training that leads directly to a job with us. You build a business inside the ARC helping people. So we offer a training um, and we offer workplace consulting. So workplaces can, can we, we never push. We never t say you ever have to do anything that's that's guaranteed shutdown. But we have methods for re-cueing, for, for taking the, the disease stimulation, to the stimulation out of the workplace that's creating the cravings for the processed foods that are creating the expensive to treat diseases that are making employers uh, crazy with expense, healthcare expense. 
So we know how to re-queue a workplace to queue the employees to eat healthy. So we have that service and something that I'm really interested in is being an expert witness for the, the litigation is coming. I don't know where, I don't know when, but I know it's coming. And I, I certainly could serve as an expert witness. We also, I will say we have a, a concierge service for people who are very, very busy executives. It's it's part of the addiction reset community, but it's, it's a kind of an elite service. And we have a video library subscription. We put out a new video every week. Uh, this week, for example, it's going to be on depression and anxiety. And that's for, this is a, a financially devastating disease. And if people run out of money, uh, get the subscription. It's $14.97 a month. You get access to our library, which is 60 videos right now. And then you get a new video every week. So that's $14.97. You can start there. You just keep playing those videos again and again and again and again. And that will help you retrain those brain cells. That's incredible. I That is such a wonderful message of hope for people that probably feel like they've tried everything, they've done it all, all the workout programs and all the diet programs and all of this just wasting money and time and resources to be able to break free from this and to actually have a life and, and a productive life and a healthy life and to be able to literally reverse aging like you are clearly doing. I expect to invite you back on this podcast for the next 70 years. Um, we'll both be doing great for at least that long. So I'm just, Dr. Joan Eflin, so grateful for you and for all of your work and for everything that you've Thank done you. to to share this message, to put it out in a way that's really practical for people and affordable for people. And and again, I just think that message of hope is so um, valuable in, in a time when most people can feel pretty hopeless. So thank you so very much for everything you do. And thank you so much for appearing on our show. We really appreciate you. Thank you, Casey. I could do all this stuff, but if I didn't have people like you to get it out there, it would be very ineffective. So thank you. Well, it's a great partnership and we were honored to host you today. Thank you. Absolutely. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio. It's really inspiring and amazing to see some of the reviews that we have been getting and also to receive so many messages and emails about how these episodes have improved our listeners' lives. And so thank you so very much. We are so happy to bring these episodes to you and provide them for free. And we really hope that they help you in your life. Uh, we have just passed two major milestones, which is absolutely mind-blowing to me. And basically, we did both of these in pretty much the exact same day. We have just passed 100,000 downloads worldwide of Boundless Body Radio, and we have just launched our 250th episode, which is absolutely amazing. Like I said, I never imagined we could reach that many people. We always want to keep you updated on things that we're doing on our website. So if you go to myboundlessbody.com, you can always see what we're up to. This month, we have a link that you can go and schedule a functional movement screen, which we do virtually over Zoom. A functional movement screen is a series of seven different movements and three different clearing tests, which is designed to find weak links in the body, such as muscle imbalances and joint stability issues. It's a really great tool for discovering inefficient movement. And even if you're not experiencing pain in certain areas 
tissues of your body. It's something that can prevent injury later on. Some muscles need to be stretched, some need to be strengthened, and we can help you create a plan around that so that you can stay healthy and continue to move well for the rest of your life. So again, you can go and schedule that at myboundlessbody.com. You will also see the other services that we offer. You can always schedule a complimentary 30-minute consultation with us to really chat about anything that you like. And remember, if you are enjoying Boundless Body Radio, please take a minute, give us a rating or review on Apple. It really helps get this passion project out to other people. And thank you again for tuning into Boundless Body Radio.